what's what's becoming uh, not just the largest cluster of cases uh, in the U.S., but not the largest cluster of cases, unfortunately, in the world. So we're all experiencing and living through an unprecedented time. The COVID-19 pandemic is affecting every facet of our lives. We at ISN thought it might well serve the nephrology community to have a discussion with those of you who are experiencing real-time this unfolding drama. We want to know what you're seeing out there in relation to your patients and how you're coping professionally and personally. Welcome and thank you for making uh, what we know is little time in your lives to have this conversation. I'll start by asking you to introduce yourselves, where in the U.S. you are and working uh, and describe uh, a little bit about what you do. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to kick off and really appreciate the opportunity to, to meet virtually like this. Uh, so my name is Raghu Dervasala. I'm a nephrologist uh, based in Seattle uh, at the University of Washington. Uh, most of my time is, is spent actually with the Northwest Kidney Centers, uh, where I'm the Associate Chief Medical Officer. Uh, for those not familiar with us, we are the third largest not-for-profit in the country, and we provide dialysis to about 1,800 patients in the greater Seattle area across 19 facilities, uh, and also through our hospital services program. Uh, and I'm the medical director of our uh, acute care program, where we partner with eight hospitals in our region. Uh, just briefly, a little bit of our background here. Um, so Seattle had the, um, had the distinction of being the site of the first uh, confirmed COVID uh, positive patients on U.S. soil. Uh, that was in mid-January. And then at the end of February, uh, the first COVID-associated death. Uh, that actually happened on a Friday. Friday night is when we first learned about that. And 48 hours later, we heard about, heard about the second death. So the first two deaths uh, associated with covid uh, both happened to be dialysis patients who were dialyzing in our outpatient facilities before they got uh, acutely ill. Both were dialyzing uh, under the care of our hospital services program as well when they were uh, uh, hospitalized. So really over the course of that weekend, it kind of uh, forced us to the forefront of uh, confronting COVID uh, here in our local community and certainly within, within our organization. So, um, yeah, thank you for the... Uh, invitation as well. Um, my name is Smith Mullen. I'm a transplant nephrologist and a general nephrologist at uh, Columbia University in New York City. Um, so while we don't have the, you know, the honor of being the first set of cases, we definitely have the most cases now in the United States. Um, and so we're currently essentially at the epic center of what's, what's becoming uh, not just the largest cluster of cases uh, in the U.S., but the largest cluster of cases, unfortunately, in the world. Um, and I think that's that's provided a lot of uh, perspective, and uh, you know, in terms of how much this can change uh, your day-to-day -day work. Uh, fortunately, we haven't yet to lose a dialysis patient of our own to um, to COVID, uh, but we've lost a number of transplant recipients, unfortunately, uh, many who are several years out uh, to this infection. So I'll, uh, I'll just start with a question. Uh, are you seeing kidney involvement in COVID patients and, and, and to what nature? So, so I think our experiences are probably very different. Um, you know, the, as I mentioned, we, we had the first cases identified within the uh, ESRD population. Um, it, it, it sounds very much like the the, the way things have progressed have been very different. Our experience here in Seattle versus what you're seeing there, 
you know, we, we were forced early on to kind of get our processes and protocols up in place in anticipation of the, the surge of patients that would be coming. Um, to date, you know, we certainly have seen kind of a steady uptick, but it's been more of a trick, I would say, than anything. Um, all the modeling is suggesting that we're going to hit our, our peak probably in a few weeks' time. And uh, you know, I think it speaks somewhat to just the social distancing measures that have been put in place here. And I think it really has slowed the rate at which this uh, uh, pandemic is going to um, impact our local uh, healthcare environment here. Um, you know, through my role with hospital services, I'm, I'm in close contact with all of our partner hospitals. And really, you know, one of the things <clears> I wanted to have a good sense uh, for our regional capacity. Uh, so, so when the surge does come, are we going to have enough resources to deploy in order to support renal replacement therapy for all the patients who are admitted? And so I'm in regular contact with our partner hospitals, trying to get a sense of what the census is like and how things are evolving. Uh, I would say that our inpatient census for COVID has definitely been on the uptick and predictably in the last, uh, in the, over the course of the last five days or so. Um, you know, somewhat surprising to me, we're not seeing a huge number of patients who are requiring dialysis at this point. Um, and it seems to be uh, a mix of patients who develop acute kidney injury uh, in the setting of, of COVID. Uh, and uh, disease, uh, but also ESRD patients who have developed disease who are being admitted. So we're, we're, we're definitely seeing a mix of both the uh, AKI scenario as well as the uh, uh, ESRD patients. Um, but I think that's very different from the experience I was just hearing about in, uh, in, in New York. Yeah, so, you know, we, we have, um, we now have a little over 350, close to 400 patients with COVID in the hospital. Uh, about one in four of our patients with COVID is uh, headed towards the ICU or to a step-down unit of care with, you know, a significant amount of uh, oxygen requirements. So even if they're not on a ventilator, they're frequently on non-rebreathers uh, or high-flow nasal cannula. So, you know, the oxygen requirements are, are reasonably high. Uh, the AKI rate is, I think, a little lower than what's been published, but um, it's certainly not 30%. Um, and we're seeing a large influx of dialysis patients coming in. So even though they're stable, they look like uh, they're, they're hypoxemic. And because they're hypoxemic, they need, you know, they're, they're at least on two or three liters of oxygen. So now in the dialysis unit, the inpatient dialysis unit, we now have an entire shift of patients who are COVID positive. We do about 10 or 12 um, COVID positive patients at the bedside in isolation. Um, you know, and we're probably going to need a second shift shortly just to be able to, to accommodate all of those people. Um, you know, and the other challenge I think with the AKIs is interestingly, you know, what, at least what we're seeing is the majority of these patients don't appear to be hemodynamically unstable. So they could, if you wanted to do intermittent hemodialysis in the ICU, you could probably get away with it, the majority, but given resource constraints and the fact that it is, uh, you know, there's so many patients, uh, we've also kind of starting to reach our capacity in terms of uh, continuous renal replacement therapies and providing, having enough resources to go around to get everybody, um, you know, adequate CRRT. It's, it's interesting you share that, and I, I appreciate kind of hearing a little bit about your your, your numbers there. Um, you know, as I, as I look across a number of our regional hospitals, uh, and kind of going into this, you know, some of the numbers that we had heard, and this is extrapolating from experiences initially out of China and what was published, 
uh, you know, 15% of patients uh, who develop COVID would need hospitalization, 5% of whom would need ICU level of care. And then thinking about those in the ICU, uh, 15% uh, with acute kidney injury um, and potentially needing renal replacement therapy. I would just say our experience as, as of now, it strikes me that um, uh, it's probably closer to a quarter or a third of patients uh, who are hospitalized who are needing ICU level care. Um, and I don't know if that is because they, they truly need ICU level care or the concern is out there that we know these patients can can deteriorate so rapidly, there's a low threshold to get them into an ICU care setting. Um, but it, it seems to be higher than what's been published in the literature. But amongst those in the ICU, uh, we're not seeing um, uh, demand for renal replacement therapy. Uh, it, it's lower than what has been shown in the literature, um, at least thus far. And again, you know, I think our, our story is still unfolding in the few weeks to come. Yeah, I, I think, ICU, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, uh, amongst those in the ICU, uh, and you know, my presumption coming into it is that, you know, that the folks with AKI in the ICU would probably be in the context of multi-organ failure and they might be too unstable to tolerate anything other than uh, uh, continuous therapy. But in fact, uh, you know, we're, we are using intermittent hemodialysis for uh, some patients in the ICU right now um, successfully. So, um, yeah, I think that mirrors kind of our experience as well. So. Um, I'm actually quite surprised as to how stable they are despite them being in like uh, full-blown ARDS. Yeah. You know, and, the, and the challenge for us has been that, um, you know, when you have limited resources in terms of just making sure everybody's getting enough renal replacement therapy, we're getting, we're seeing increasing confusion around, should we dialyze people more aggressively? Should we pull fluid off? Because they, you know, their lungs look wet. Um, a number of people are having, you know, have failed their uh, extubation trials. And so you're going back and instead of doing every other day dialysis, you're needing to provide a session in between for ultrafiltration. Um, you know, so we're seeing a lot of those requests. And so, uh, and you know, the, the, we've seen a slightly different approach here. So we have very large step down units. So, and we're not, we haven't hit the peak of our surge either. It's expected end of April. So the concern has been, um, you know, we have all of these people in step-down units on reasonably high oxygen requirements, and you get into the ICU only if you, you know, if you end up getting intubated. Um, by the time you get intubated, then it's also how much, you know, we have all these step-down patients who are, are you wet or do you have a, are you headed towards ARDS? Mm -hmm. um, so it's been hard to tease out because pe people are very stable for several days on oxygen you know, and they're febrile, but otherwise, you know, they're on four liters of oxygen starting 96, 97%. They're stable. They're not in great shape, but they're stable. And then suddenly somewhere between day five and day eight from onset of symptoms, there's a rapid deterioration. Chest x-rays get much worse, you know, and at that point they're going to get intubated. And then it's, there's always, there's these increasing debates. Is this fluid also, or is it just ARDS? You know what's going on here, and how do we manage these people? Well, so as, as we see the narrative unfold in New York, uh, um, you know what what am, one of my concerns, uh, and I think about our ability to meet the demands for renal replacement therapy, and we're talking about contingency planning based on the the peak of the surge, and you know looking at 
if we if we do get into resource constraints, how do we how do we manage that? And thoughts around uh, you know shortening treatment runs for those on intermittent uh, dialysis, uh, for those on CRT. Uh, the idea of uh, instead of being continuous twenty four hour runs, truncating to ten hours. And the ASN has come up with recommendations in that regard. Um, thinking about alternate modalities of treatment. And so, you know, thinking about acute PD, which is right. not something we typically talk about, but that's some kind of covering all basis. Um, I'd be curious to hear a little bit, um, you know, how, how you're managing those resource constraints. What are some of the things that you've stood up uh, within your, your system there? And also, if there have been any concerns at all at this point of having to um, potentially even how do you triage or prioritize if there are not enough resources and dialysis machines and staff? Like, how do you how do you prioritize or, or triage in terms of candidacy for dialysis if, if that's coming um, yet? Yeah, so that, that, those are exactly the conversations we've been having this week, right? So, so I'll tell you the things that we've we have done. Um, so one is, uh, you know, we've we recognize uh, there is going to be a resource constraint at the peak, so we might as well start planning for it. So that's the first thing. Um, the second is uh, our goal has been to try to make sure that we have as many modalities available and access. So the 12-hour shift change we, we found to be inefficient. Patients didn't get on and get on. You know, the, the time you lose in priming the machine and taking down the machine uh, became a challenge. And so we're, we're currently at a 24-hour model where we're providing 24 hours worth of CRT between two patients and tracking that. Um, we have a command center that essentially is manned by one, one nephrologist who helps navigate just between the multiple teams because we have, we normally have about nine ICUs. We've converted some step down units into ICUs, uh, some wards into ICUs. Um, so just because we've now gotten much spread out much more geographically because of the volume of patients, um, we have a central command structure that allows us to just helps navigate who's who are the people who need renal replacement therapy, which are the what pairs of patients are going to share a machine, and then go by and remind nursing staff PCDs to say, okay, that patient's coming off and this one's going on. Um, we've had to stagger shift uh, CRT changes away from when nurses change. Um, to make sure that doesn't, you know, it doesn't interfere with the the nursing nursing shift changes. Um, and then, you know, we have started talking about acute PD as well. Uh, you know, that the, in the absence of elective surgeries, the surgeons are more than happy to do stuff for us suddenly. Um, so we've talked about, you know, acute PD catheter insertions. The one challenge, though, is you have to be careful about who you want on acute PD. Um, because a lot of these patients uh, are, especially the ones with multi-organ failure and severe ARDS, are potentially going to be candidates for proning. So if you prone them, that your PD catheter is essentially useless. Mm. Um, you know, so that, so there has to be some sort of. So we have to think through exactly. You know, if we see proning for ARDS down the line for this individual, that's somebody who we don't think is a candidate for acute PD. That's somebody who. Um, you know, we would probably stick with uh, CRRT for. So that's been what you know that that's been our broad strategy around providing renal replacement therapies. The dialysis unit, um, 
you know, part of our challenge actually became nursing staff. Um, so you, we, you know, and credentialing enough nurses into the inpatient hospital system. So right now what we're talking about is trying to figure out how we get nurses to manage or man an overnight dialysis shift. So if you have enough auto machines, uh, you could probably do some bedsides over, overnight to kind of offload the pressure that you'd have on your inpatient unit and the day team. So, but I'd be curious. And what I'm curious about actually is that, you know, we also have a large number of patients who are stable, doing well, ready to be discharged. So how, how are you managing uh, patients who are COVID positive being discharged, coming back to your outpatient dialysis units? Yeah, that's, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and uh, I think one that, you know, all, all organizations are, are, are wrestling with, uh, you know, from the outset, one of our guiding principles was that we really want to uh, you know, have our patients dialyze in the ambulatory setting if they're clinically stable to do so. Um, for the exact reason that you're describing, we, we know that the hospitals, no matter if but when, they're going to become just overwhelmed and right. already burdened and, and under great strain. Uh, so how do we keep our patients in the outpatient unit if it's a uh, if they clinically that's an appropriate place for them to dialyze. Uh, and a big part of that is really just first and foremost, you know, maintain the safety of the environment for other patients and, and our staff who are caring for them. And so early on, uh, you know, we, we developed kind of our protocols around uh, contact droplet precautions um, for COVID confirmed positive patients. And for those with suspected uh, infection, uh, within our units, uh, we're fortunate in that most of our units have um, rooms, at least one room that is separate, if not an isolation room, at least one that is um, walled off from, from the rest with like glass doors and whatnot, so that we have the ability to have a patient who is positive um, go back into a, a space where they're not going to be at risk of uh, potentially transmitting disease to others. Um, but that's, you know, it, it's one thing for us to have our, our process in place. But what we've heard is that there are challenges uh, in terms of getting patients discharged because often these patients are not going to home. They're going to a skilled nursing facility or a nursing home. And understandably, there's reluctance on the part of the receiving institution to, to take the patient back. Given kind of what we have seen, and certainly in our local community, there have been some pretty uh, large clusters that have originated from nursing homes. Uh, and so there's there's reticence in terms of accepting patients back unless they there's true confirmation that they are now um, disease negative. So looking for uh, you know serial tests that have shown that they're they're no longer uh, positive for the virus, um, but also barriers on the transportation side as well. Transportation companies potentially getting patients to and fro to to the Dallas's unit. So we've done what we can within our our facilities, but then it's also kind of the, the network uh, uh, within the healthcare community and the ancillary services that help to support that. Um, generally, you know, the, I think the literature has shown certainly with other, um, uh, you know, coronavirus outbreaks like this, and certainly within uh, uh, with COVID as well, that our patients tend to be shedding virus longer mm -hmm. than, uh, than might be, uh, uh, you may expect with someone who does not have underlying renal failure. And so we've been taking an approach of erring on the side of caution. So if someone is confirmed positive, we will, if, if we don't have testing that shows they are negative because access to testing can be an issue, 
we, we assume that they are going to remain positive for an extended period. And so we, we keep them in, um, in the contact droplet precautions and separated from the general patient population for at least 14 days um, or three days after symptoms have completely resolved, whichever comes later. That's kind of the approach that we've been taking. Um, you know, one of the challenges in anything like this is saying, you know, what would you do under ideal circumstances versus what is the reality of the situation right. with the resource constraints and whatnot that you're operating within? And so it's kind of finding that balance, I think, is really one of the one of the challenges here. And, uh, you know, kind of what we stand up in place right now could very well change in, you know, uh, days down the road. This, this has been con constantly evolving as we've kind of worked our way through this. And I suspect probably similar uh, experiences there as well. Yeah, no, it, it's it's uh, very similar. We've it's it's been an iterative process as we realize just the scale of the problem that the the solution needs to be different as the problem gets bigger. Um, so, have you given any thought to like converting entire shifts, or given that you have a network of dialysis facilities, to create a COVID unit, so to speak, or a COVID shift where every patient is COVID positive on, on that shift. I know that's that's been a conversation here in New York. Yeah. Um, um, we have definitely have thought about that and kind of, mm -hmm. you know, again, not knowing what the volumes are going to be, we kind of, for contingency planning, you know, no, no possibilities are off the table. Um, I will say that. Uh, but that is something we've talked about. Uh, you know, would it make sense to have a standalone unit uh, where our COVID patients would be um, uh, co-localized? Uh, again, because the the volume that we've seen so far has been kind of more of a a trickle or a drip as opposed to kind of a big bolus of cases. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, we have been able to accommodate patients within our facilities. Uh, out of our 19 facilities, I think all but four or five have separate rooms. So if we have someone who's confirmed positive, if they normally dialyze, at a, our goal is to get them back to their the unit where they are known. Um, but if that's a unit that does not have like a separate walled off room or isolation room where they can safely dialyze, then we'll transfer them to a unit temporarily where they do have that resource available. Um, and given the given the available given the available the available had. Uh, thus far, we've been able to accommodate the number of patients. So we have we haven't um, done anything yet by way of having a dedicated unit or dedicating a shift to COVID positive patients because we haven't had the numbers that have necessarily warranted that. You know, one of the other challenges again is that a number of our patients are reliant on transportation services and whatnot, and so uh, you know, having if we end up moving a lot of patients from one unit to the other to make the accommodations that you're describing here, it just introduces another. Uh, layer of complexities in terms of being able to coordinate uh, right. rides and whatnot. So, and the patients that the you're patient seeing in the outpatients are uh, are all patients that uh, have been discharged from the hospital, or are you taking people who are COVID positive but otherwise stable and allowing them to continue in the dialysis unit? So both. So we have some patients who um, you know they are they are our known patients who who were uh, developed um, COVID. Uh, required hospitalization and then clinically improved to the point that they're safe to discharge from the hospital. And so they are patients who would, are coming back to us and we're starting to have some of those patients come back to dialyze in our facilities. And then we have patients who um, uh, developed COVID, but also were clinically well enough that they did not necessarily need to be hospitalized. And so they're continuing to, to dialyze with us. And 
know, there's all that we've kind of done within our units to uh, prevent transmission uh, of COVID to patients and staff. Uh, there's only so much we can control. We, we, we can control our environment, but, you know, patients are living in facilities. They're on right. different forms of transit. They have other people at home. And, you know, some of the patients who we're seeing who have developed uh, COVID, uh, they have known contacts at home who also have, have uh, are COVID positive as well. So, um, but clinically well enough that they don't need to be esc uh, escalated to, to inpatient admission status. So. Okay. And you don't find, um, I mean, have you found concerns among staff when you have COVID patients or has that not been an issue? Uh, I think it's always an issue. It, it's always a big concern. I mean, there is a, a tremendous amount of fear and angst um, out there. And, you know, there's so many different sources of information. And, you know, we, we try uh, to be very consistent and transparent in how we communicate with our staff, but we are kind of just one source of information. And and staff are right. hearing things from different places. And so, uh, you know, one of the important things for us, uh, you know, I guess, I guess how we've approached it, it's, it's you know, upfront, really making sure that we're educating and re-educating our staff, uh, making sure that they are aware of kind of all the safeguards that we put in place, um, being very transparent in our communications with staff and sharing data as well. Because sometimes it's the, uh, you know, the fear of what could happen is actually worse to communicate with them in terms of, hey, here's what's happening on a weekly basis. Here are the number of positive patients we've had. Here are the number of patients uh, where we've tested and staff members who've been tested. And, uh, you know, sometimes even seeing that, yeah, we've tested all these patients and all these staff members and, you know, their tests are coming back negative can be reassuring to say, hey, the systems and the process we put in place are, are, are actually working. Okay. Um, then also creating a lot of forms for, for staff to ask questions. And so uh, we have, there's our chief nursing officer holding two calls a day, basically where staff members can call in, ask questions, express concerns, et cetera. And I think that's incredibly uh, powerful and appreciated by, by our staff. And as leaders, you know, we're, we're trying to get out to the units and be visible um, without kind of adding to the confusion and the chaos, but but kind of periodically checking in. And I think just even being out there in the units, meeting with staff, speaking with patients, addressing any questions or concerns that come up, I think can be a, a source of comfort as well. But I think I think it's a very important um, point that you raise because really that's, you can talk about, you know, what are all the resources we need? And I think, you know, having it obviously PPE and the equipment and whatnot, that's critically important. But in many ways, it's our staff that are our most uh, valued and precious resource in all of this. And so kind of making sure that our, our staff are taken care of and recognizing and acknowledging all that, all that they are doing um, uh, in, our, in, in support of our efforts against the, the pandemic, I think, is critically important. I mean, I'd, like, I'd love to turn the question back to you because I'm sure your staff are basically facing hardships and working under circumstances that they probably never thought they'd experience during their careers. Um, no, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, so part of the challenge has been that we've, um, uh, in the inpatient hospital unit particularly, you know, there've been instances where people get admitted to the hospital. They're not even persons under investigation. They're just, they got admitted for whatever it is they did. And then, you know, at some point during the hospitalization, somebody says, oh, we should rule them out for COVID. And then they become, you know, that's when all the barriers, so to speak, go up. 
and then they either rule in or rule out. But when they rule in, you know, it's created a lot of concern and potentials for exposure, right? Uh, because you're working in an acute care hospital and not everyone is COVID positive and not everyone requires those that kind of isolation. Um, so early in the COVID crisis, uh, that did happen a few times. Uh, we have since instituted essentially, um, you know, a universal protocol that we assume everyone coming into the unit is, is potentially COVID positive. Um, just because that is, that's the nature of what, what you end up doing in, a, in the hospital. And it hasn't been comfortable, right? You're wearing N95 masks, a flu shield, a full gown. It can get uncomfortable. And so, and there is, you know, the very real concern of tra uh, disease transmission. Um, but it is, it's been about educating the, the nursing staff, uh, making sure they understand we're, uh, we're here to support them and we're, you know, here to make sure they're safe and protected and supported. Uh, has, has been, you know, essential and it's been essential to kind of reinforce that message repeatedly so they don't feel like they're, they're being left out. Let me jump in here. We've been going a long time. Um, that's great. I just want to ask one question. This is a question that I think, I, I think is, is a little sort of off topic, but you, you guys and how you guys are coping with it. What's, your, what's changing in your life, your lifestyle? How are you coping with it, your mental health? How are you guys doing? <laughs> you want to go first, Mike? Sure. I think it's a, a great, great question, and it's the uh, it's sort of thing that can be easily overlooked. Um, uh, you know, and, and not just us as individuals, but really just when we think about our our staff and personnel. Um, uh, you know, making sure everyone is feeling safe and taking care of themselves uh, during during this. And uh, I think we're all getting this. This is not a sprint but this is going to be a marathon it's going to go on for some time so i think it is it is important that we are taking care of ourselves and one another um you know from 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 my perspective uh again it's a little bit different in that we are bracing for i think what is going to be coming uh we know a wave is coming we don't know how big it's going to be but all modeling here suggests in a few weeks time is when we're really going to be um at, at its peak our, our experience is somewhat you know unfortunately is, is very different so um you know the the first thing that changed early in this is um so we we have uh we have a, a leadership call for the division um you know every day and just because of how crazy it's gotten, you know, it's been moved around. So the call actually happens at 6 p.m. Um, so that the people who need to be on it can actually get on and we can talk about, you know, uh, redeployments, restructuring, um, you know, throwing away schedules, re reorganizing this to be more efficient. I, I think the, the, the amazing part that has, that I, I've seen is, you know, it's, you know, we're, we're, large division and we're reasonably close um it, it's it's actually a really fun faculty group of faculty but it's it's been interesting to see how just how quickly we've come together as a t as a tight-knit team we're willing to redeploy in ways in many different ways people are more than happy to kind of step out outside their comfort zone as part of a team effort um you know uh volunteer there's been no shortage of volunteers but it has been you know, that's been the silver lining. It's been busy and difficult and tough, particularly for trainees. So we've had to kind of keep an eye on the trainees, make sure people don't feel overwhelmed. Uh, it's a different culture in some ways. So, you know, we started out with doing telemedicine visits. 
uh, emptied out our clinics, uh, you know, and we've gotten to a point where our clinics are essentially closed at this point, except for absolute emergencies, uh, just because of the amount of work that's going on inpatient um, for, you know, people who aren't doing necessarily that well. And um, I think while there is a lot of attention around, you know, hospitals, et cetera, around ventilators and ICU beds, I think the need for renal replacement therapy for a lot for the patients um, is underestimated, and so that kind of flies under the radar. Uh, and to be completely honest, it initially, when we looked at the initial estimates, we didn't think we would get stretched quite this quickly. Um, so that has been a surprise. Uh, but I think you know we've we have a system in place now to meet what's uh, what what we think will be the the peak to, uh, you know surge requirements, so to speak. I just finished three weeks on service and it was, um, you know, it was, it was an interesting three weeks because you actually get to see how, you know, clearly there's a calm before the storm where we know it's coming, we're starting to plan, it's getting busier and busier and busier. Um, the, you know, and I, I was I was covering a transplant service for a couple of weeks. It was unfortunate because we saw a large number, a huge influx of patients, transplant patients coming into the system that, um, you know, we weren't, I mean, we knew that was really a distinct possibility, of course, that all immunosuppressed, but we hadn't seen a lot of reports of immunosuppressed patients being, you know, having uh, large clusters of them. And that's essentially what we end up, ended up getting is this enormously large cluster. So that was difficult, but, um, you know, hopefully things will start to get better soon. Oh. Yeah, but you know, this this is um, this I think has really, in some ways, brought out the community in uh, in the health profession. Um, I, I, it's been it's been interesting to watch the team coalesce very quickly, both in nephrology outside and say, so, you know, we have a problem, we got to figure it out, and people are more than happy to kind of team up and figure things out. Yeah, and that that I think is wonderful, and not not just within healthcare, but even beyond. Just some of the resiliency that we're seeing, um, and really sense of community and people, you know, gal in, in ways that they haven't before, which I think is just which is terrific. All right. Yeah. No, I agree.